Welcome, welcome, you Super Bowl bowlers. Good to see y'all. How many are Super Bowl fans? Mm. So, this is Super Bowl number. How many of you remember Super Bowl one? Who won that game? Huh? Who said it? Green Bay Packers. Where's Bill when you need him? Okay. Who did they beat? Oh. Huh? You're close. They beat the Chiefs, and the MVP of that game would be? Pretty easy to guess that one. Bart Star. Who won Super Bowl two? Oh. Say it. Okay, I'll give you a hint. The Green Bay Packers. You are good. And who do you think the MVP of that game was? Bart Star. Very good. Now the trick one is, who won Super Bowl three? That was my favorite Super Bowl game. Nope. Okay, I'm going to give you a hint. The New York Jets. And who was the MVP of that game? Broadway Joe. 16-7 over the Colts. Now, I want to dedicate this morning's message to all Cowboys and Patriots fans in the room. No, no, it's okay to laugh. Because nobody here has a clue what I'm going to be preaching about. So keep that in mind in just a few moments and see how relevant it is. Because I want to address this morning on the serious side, perhaps the most prevalent and oldest human condition in our world, e- even today, even this day as I speak, and even in this audience to whom I'm speaking. And it's present somewhere, not far from you, in your neighborhood, in your family circle, in your sphere of influence, in your own home, uh, even unless you've been existing in an altered universe, sitting in the same row that you find yourself in right here this morning. Today's scripture, and if you have any, if you have a Bible or anything that is close to it, If you would, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19 and just stay there because we're going to camp a while, okay? 1 Kings chapter 19, that's right just before 2 Kings, okay? I always like to help you find stuff. This short series that I'm finishing up today is called Digging Out. Part one was entitled, Oh, Consequences. Consequences. The First um, Kings 19, if you're still looking. The psychiatry students were in their college class one day, and their professor began a discussion to try to prove a point. And he said, what we're going to talk about today are the emotional extremes that many mentally disturbed people go through. For example, he asked one student, what's the opposite of joy? And the student answered, sadness. 
He asked of another uh, student, what's the opposite of depression? And that student replied, elation. Turning to a young man from Texas, he asked, the, he, he asked this question. He said, what is the opposite of woe? Well, now the Texan replied, I suppose the opposite of woe would be giddy up. So I'm going to try to stay on the serious side here. Some of you are very jovial this morning, I guess. But part two in this series, simply called Soul Healing. According to the famous American psychiatrists uh, Frank Minrith and Paul Meyer, the majority of Americans suffer from a serious clinical depression at some point in their lives. Most of these people never get help. They just fight the battle and fight the battle and fight the battle on their own. A number of years ago, if you read an advertisement or advertisement, however you want to say it, for Paxil, which was the known antidepressant at that time, it would have words like depressed mood, <coughs> excuse me, loss of interest, sleep problems, difficulty concentrating, agitation, restlessness. And then it would conclude uh, with these words. Life is too precious to let another day go by feeling not quite yourself. If you've experienced some of these symptoms nearly every day for at least two weeks, a chemical imbalance could be to blame. And life can feel difficult all day, every day. Now, if you read that, advertisement, you would be led to believe that most, if not all, of those suffering from depression are victims of a chemical imbalance. And indeed, the holy grail of psychiatrists is to find that magic pill, that powerful potion that will correct that imbalance and give people everywhere relief from their dark moments of sadness and hopelessness. Let me state it this way as the underlying theme or thesis of my message this morning. Depression is a very real part of life for many people. And at one point or another, it's a very real part of life for most people. So I have a few questions I, I, I want to ask just as we help you get mentally set for what we want to say this morning I don't want uh, visual, visible or audible answers. I just want you to think about the question. I want you to let it get seated, and then we'll, we'll talk about it, those questions, okay? So my first question is this. Is depression a mark, again, don't let anybody answer, of a lack of faith? You maybe never thought of that question before. Or maybe you've been confronted with that idea. So I'm just going to put it out there, and we're going to come back. Is depression a mark of a lack of faith? Second question I have for your thought processes is, is, it always, is depression always a sinful attitude? See, depression strikes more than 10 million Americans within any six-month period. That's a lot of people. 
And I want to stand before you today to say some of the most godly people in the Bible, and even in Christian history per se, have struggled with this thing called depression. You're not the first one, you're not the only one, you will not be the last one. So my question there, question three is, could depression really impact a Christian's life? A number of years ago, I remember this, this story goes back, oh, 15 to 20 years ago at least, but there was a church in Indiana called Southeast Christian Church, and big, it was a big church and a, and a really growing church, and it offered a time during their midweek service, I think they met like on Wednesday night, and they would usually get six to 700 people in that service, and there was a time in that service every week where people could come forward and have the elders of the church lay hands on them and pray for healing and so on. And it wasn't just an out-and-out healing service, but there was a part of the service where that was done. And the speaker pointed out that there was, quote-unquote, a lot of hurt in the room. You know, even in a church this size, and we meet Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you look around and people are putting on the smile. Some Some of those smiles are genuine and real, but people try hard and some try harder. But you know what the truth is in a room like this? There's a lot of hurt. There's sickness. There's broke, there are broken relationships. There's grief. And this man said that at the time when he called or invited people to come and be prayed over, the response began kind of as a trickle. A few people, a couple here, a couple there. And people started making their way down. Pretty soon, people were coming from all areas of that big auditorium, even from the, the, the balcony, the large balcony. And they were walking along, and they would come individually, and then some of them would come as couples, and uh, there were even people coming in wheelchairs. And before long, he said, that trickle of people became a torrent. And one of the elders who was, who was actually blessed with, with meeting people and talking to them and listening to them and praying with them said he wasn't prepared for the response to that appeal. And here's what he said, I was totally surprised. I was taken off my feet by the magnitude of it right here in our own church. Here's what another elder said, I did not expect the vast response either, nor did I anticipate the type of prayer needs that were revealed. Obvious to me, and I'm just throwing this in as my aside, people were at a point where they were willing to open up. That's one of our problems in today's Christian world. Everybody just goes to church on Sunday and covers everything up the rest of the time, and everything's fine, everything's good. Oh yeah, praise the Lord. Well, yeah, we're not, we're not opening, we're not being completely uh, transparent, and, and we're not getting the help because of that. And this elder said, at least two, listen to this, at least two out of three ask for prayer for depression. He said, when they started coming towards me, I thought people were just going to ask for prayer for physical needs, some kind of healing to do with a sickness or surgery or who knows, medical tests, whatever. But he said, so many people, one after another, after another said, I feel depressed. I feel so down. I feel so unworthy. I see no future. 
And he said, I was amazed at how many had a feeling of total unworthiness. And at these famous Minerth Meyer clinics that I I alluded to a few moments ago across the nation, in an average week today, (coughs) thousands of people will visit there for some form of therapy. 75% of those clients, says Dr. Meyer, will have either clinical depression or some kind of what's called anxiety disorder. I want to repeat an opening statement. Depression can be a very serious problem. You say, I didn't come here to be told about depression, and you got me depressed already. I wasn't when you started, but I'm heading there. Hang on. What I find intriguing, matter of fact, I find it one of the most interesting things, is that God, does God just always come through anyway? Yeah. God gives us a perfect biblical case study in clinical depression right here in 1 Kings chapter 19. Oh my, what a book this is. What a book this is. If you haven't been in it very much lately, you probably aren't quite sure what I mean, but what a book this is. Yeah, get in it. You'll be saying that with me. What a book this is. Yeah. Yeah. You get into it, it gets into you. It changes lives. Nothing like it. What a God we serve. Can I get something out of that? Not even that, huh? All right. I'm plowing now. Wow. I know, you're so wrapped, you're so, your attention is so focused that you, you can't think of these other things. What a book. You know, it doesn't matter what the human problem is, the answer for it is right here. You say, well, I don't even know what all the problems are. No, that's why you're not God. But he anticipated all of this long before you and I ever had the problem, or even ha- knew we had a problem. And it's here, it's in the book. And I'm going to show you a perfect example of that. One of the things I studied a lot when I was doing postgraduate studies was counseling. I took so many counseling courses and so read so many counseling books and did so much work in counseling, specialized in confrontational or neuothetic counseling. And, and um, I just have to tell you, uh, one of the hardest parts of that was to have an open casebook with basically dozens and dozens of cases, all based in in history. Somebody went through it, and you had to analyze that case. What happened? What did you find out? How would you handle this? What were the steps you gave them to get over the problem, et cetera, et cetera? So case studies I'm very, very, very familiar with. Plus 42 years of pastoring, I have a few case studies in my back pocket as well. Now there, I, I did my thing, and my ego's just about right up there now. But here is a classic case study in clinical depression. I can find a few others in Scripture, but I can't find one any better than this. You won't find one. Because in this text, 1 Kings 19, we find the prophet Elijah experiencing many of the classic symptoms of clinical depression. Such as, let's let's take a look at them, okay? Okay. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 so you can follow. 
Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and I'm going to tell you in a few moments what that was, and how he had killed all the prophets, that is the false prophets, with the sword. So Jezebel, the queen, sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the God, small God, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, you've got 24 hours, buddy, I do not make your life like that of one of those, or one of the false prophets. So verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life, and when he came to Beersheba in Judah, He left his servant there, and on and on the story goes. Okay, that's fear. You can write that one down. And verse 4, Elijah prayed that he might, can anybody read it and see it there? That he might what? Anybody? Elijah prayed that he might. Yeah. I have had enough. I hear people say that. I've had enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Just, that's it. So he prayed that he might die. Verse 4. Suicidal tendency. Then the next verse 5. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Excessive tiredness. I'm guessing he slept for a couple days, maybe longer. This guy had run a long ways. He was extremely emotional. He was at the end of his rope. He figured his life was worth nothing. And it just beat him up physically, emotionally, every other way. So he lay down, go to sleep. And then verse 10, if you want to slip down to there, he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with with the sword. And I'm the only one left now. And now they're trying to kill me too. That is the most classic pity party in the history of mankind. Feelings of rejection. And I think the fear, I think the suicidal tendency, I think the excessive tiredness, and I think the feelings of rejection were were the, the symptoms of depression that Elijah experienced for a very long time. I can't give you a timeline, but just from what I see and read and trying to put times together, I would say he was in this fit of despair for at least two to three months, maybe longer. Now, what's really bizarre about this story, I told you I'd come back and tell you what that conversation that Jezebel had Uh, with Ahab, what that was all about. I want to come back and tell you how bizarre this whole thing is. Just a few days before, if you were to flip back, and I don't want you to do it just now, but I want you to read chapters 18 and 19 quietly sometime and just take in uh, what transpired there in those matter of few days or weeks. And in chapter 18, just the previous chapter, here's what was going on, or here's what happened. 
Elijah had preached one of the greatest sermons of his life and maybe, maybe the most powerful message from God that's ever been delivered. And I, I, I don't have any compunction about, about saying that. Listen, he confronted, four, he challenged them and then confronted 450 of the false prophets of the god Baal. Plus, he said, bring your buddies from the other god and bring them along. So 400 more false prophets came. It was one against 850 false prophets. He was on Mount Carmel, and he exposed them as the false prophets that they really were. And because of his faith and obedience, God showed him his power. He sent fire down out of the heavens to consume even the sacrifice that he had placed on the altar, and it consumed everything, including the water they put on it to put the fire out. And then a few hours later, God sent this downpour of rain on a land that hadn't seen rain for over three years. Wow, what a God we serve. Of all the things I'd like to see that went on in Scripture, that's my number one thing. I would love to have been on Mount Carmel that day. Woo-hoo! Wow, who'd want to come off that mountain? Huh? Why? So here's my question. Here's my question. And this might be a question directed right at you. God might be just speaking to you and you alone, and you're the only one that we needed to be here for today. I don't know. But I want to ask you this question. Why would a man who had just preached such a powerful, impressive message, I mean, earth-shattering, in one fell swoop, 850 false prophets dead. The sacrifice that they, honor, that they offered to their false god, gone. A downpour of rain, they hadn't seen rain in over three years. Rejoicing now that God is still answering from the heavens. Why would a man who had experienced all of that, some of the most powerful displays of the power of God, why would he suddenly be crippled by fear and by hopelessness and by despair? Why would he run away? Why would he go to a desolate corner of the world? And why would he want to seek to die? This is not a dramatic pause. This is just to be quiet so you can process what's going on in your own head right now about how many times you said, well, I, nobody cares anyway. I might as well just die. And don't ever try to convince me that at least once in your life you haven't said that. And somebody's sitting here saying, you mean once a day? Why? I just want to get a hold of Elijah and say, why? Man, what's going on in your head? 
Why would you run? Why would you cut like that? Why would you just be so overcome with fear? Why would you just be overtaken with hopelessness? Why would you be so desperate? I don't know. Probably there are all kinds of reasons. And if you did sit down with Elijah Elijah on that day, probably you'd hear it. I don't know the why, but, but hear me. Here's the fact. Why did he run? Why was he overcome with fear? Why did he want to die? Why was he so hopeless? I don't know, but the fact is he did all those things. And what this tells me is that even God's most dynamic servants can suffer from depression. If you think any Christian person you know is immune from this kind of activity, you are dead wrong, 100% wrong. It's not necessarily a mark of a lack of faith. It's not necessarily a mark of an immoral lifestyle. It's not necessarily a mark of a person who hasn't quite grasped the meaning of their salvation. Listen, listen, I'm talking about Elijah the prophet. Listen to me. He was the, capital T-H-E, the man of God in his day. Nobody, nobody had the power and the influence for God that Elijah had. I still like to sing that song in the days of Elijah. It's just something, it's just power in that song. And now, here he is, our buddy Elijah. You know how low he was at this point? He was so, he was down so far that up didn't even seem right to him. He was down so far that nothing in this world made sense to him anymore. Just a couple of days prior, he was the man on the mountain. He was calling down fire from heaven. He was saying, Lord, I'm not going to fight this battle on my own. Take over. And that man got terribly, terribly depressed. Stay plugged in. Stay plugged in. That's not where God left him. God didn't say to Elijah, like some of us just glibly say, well, sorry, Elijah, you have a chemical imbalance and Paxil hasn't been invented yet, so I guess I can't help you out today. End of story. Some of us deal with problems in the quick fix manner. I guess we can't fix it right now, today, and then it can't be fixed. Oh, no, 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 no. Instead, long before psychiatry was ever thought of, long before healing could be bought in the little purple pill, 
Long before we had clinics and psychiatrists and psychologists. By the way, by the way, I'm not meaning any disrespect to psychiatrists or psychologists because I think they have their place and I thank God for the ones that are trying to do a good job and especially the ones who have a Christian ethic and a value system and the clinics they run re, uh, reflect that. We can't throw all of that out with it and just say, well, that's just science and it's got nothing to do with it. If you do that, you're too narrow-minded. But long before all of that stuff even came on the scene, God, listen to this, God healed a man of depression, and it was a far worse depression than anybody in this room has ever experienced, ever. And it wasn't an isolated instance. Now, if you're still listening to me, and I hope you are, I've got to say this to you. What God did for Elijah, he can and will do for you and for me too. If you didn't hear anything else and you don't plan to listen to anything, you've already checked out for the rest of the message, bye-bye. I'm glad you heard that. Heard what? What God did for Elijah, he can and will do for you and for me too. I said, what God did for Elijah, he said, what did he do? Well, I'm glad you're interested because I'm going to tell you, he can and will do it for you and for me too. Let's give him praise in the church this morning that we have a God that's able to do that. He's able to do that. Man, if this depended on me, if this depended on you, if this depended on your smarts, if this just depended on your feelings, man, we'd all be so hopeless and helpless it would be over. It would just be over. But we have a God that we serve here, and let's get him into the equation. Now, Let's notice what God did to heal Elijah. Would you like to do that? Yeah. First off, God recognized that Elijah's depression was not an imaginary problem. Elijah's depression was real. It was tangible. I mean, you've got to cut it with a knife. And God did not say... Get a hold of yourself, Elijah. I love that one. Well, get a hold of yourself. Well, how do you do that exactly? God did not say, Elijah, you know very well this is a sinful attitude. God did not say to Elijah, hey man, where's your faith? God did not say to Elijah, get a grip. God said none of those things. Didn't even imply them. God didn't treat Elijah roughly. Not at all. Is that on the screen? Yeah. Take that in for just a moment. That one line. That one line. So in answer, I thought this was kind of interesting. I, I hadn't thought of it before lately. In answer to, God, uh, to Elijah's prayer, he, he wanted to die. God let him sleep. I like that. You ever were so tired, you couldn't wait to get home, and you got home, and then you told somebody later, man, I got home, I died. Yeah, you've used that? I have. Like, whew, 
I'm so tired. I work so hard. Yeah, right. I never had to say that. And I just died. If I ever worked a day in my life, it would kill me. But you get tired sometimes. So he said, I just want to die. God said, well, I'll put you to sleep. And then you know what's going to happen? You're going to get room service. Because my angel is going to feed you. And after you've eaten, guess what you're going to do? Because what do you do after you eat a big meal? Sleep some more. I love these holiday days that we have, you know. We get up the first thing in the morning or middle of the morning or noon hour or whatever, you know. And you got to get up pretty early in the afternoon, get ahead of some of us. And, you know, then you eat, eat something and you say, now that'll do me till we have our big meal. So you've slept, you've eaten, and then the big meal comes. And what do you do? You sleep again. What did Elijah do? He prayed to die. God put him to sleep or let him sleep. Then the angel came and fed him. Then what did he do? He slept some more. There's some therapy going on here that Elijah's not aware of. You may not have been reading this superficially. And then God sends him down to the desert. He sent him south. So this must have been in the winter. For 40 days and nights. That'd be a nice vacation, wouldn't it? And in all that time... This is what you've got to understand. If you're ever trying to help somebody, even if they don't want your help, you've got to understand this. In all that time, God doesn't say a word. God doesn't offer any counsel. God doesn't set Elijah down and have the face-to-face talk. In all that time, Elijah is left alone. He's given time to do these things that need to be done. Number one, to rest. Number two, to think. I want to give you a practical, um, uh, just something that happened. It wasn't in my life, but another pastor related the story. It was a long time ago, 30-some years ago. But he said, one of my nephews, uh, he said, my sister's boy died in a fire. It was an awful thing, and it was was just, it was so, obviously so sudden. It was so horrible. And the, the pastor said, my mother was home alone when she received the call that David, the, the, uh, uh, the grandson had died. Uh, by the way, a word of caution. A person should never be alone and hear that type of news over the phone. Never. Never. Okay, we've got that straight. Alone. As she heard the news, something inside of her snapped. And when her husband got home, he found her completely disoriented and in a state of shock. By the way, the state of shock is real. The next day, the the pastor said, I had a conversation with her, and she would say, David's dead? And he said, I'd say, yes, Mom, David's dead. Then she'd talk about him for a while. Then her eyes would all glass over, and she'd say, David's dead? Yes, Mom, David's dead. And he said, all day long, day after day, the conversation would repeat itself all over again and again and again and again and again. Listen, will you take my word for it? It is never easy to see someone you love go through such a brokenness. That's one of the toughest things in life. 
And so the doctors advised this woman's husband that she should be put in the hospital for a while, and the dad said, no, I'll never get her back if you do that. And for the next few days, he never left her side. He waited on her hand and foot. He held her. He spoke kindly to her. No pro- Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting when the reality of marriage kicks in for some people? For better or for worse, what I said 48-plus years ago, what would you say? Well, as long as it's convenient, and when it's no longer, we can cut and run. I don't know what your vows said. Mine said, for better or for worse, sickness and health, rich or poor. I wouldn't have put that in again. (laughs) Yeah. I think we should put richer, richer, or something like that. (laughs) That richer or poor stuff, boy. Anyway, but did you really mean that? I don't know. A lot of people, I guess, didn't mean it. They're just words they said. But obviously this couple had something going, and they meant it. And he held her, and he spoke kindly to her. No probing questions, no pink pills, no nurses in that, in that stiff white uniform. Just rest and love. And in time she recovered, and she was able to deal with her grief. Do you know what? Grief is a process. I have people say, oh, yeah, well, that happened two years, three years, four or five years ago. And I, yeah, you should get over that. Who said? Do you know the various stages of grief? Some people struggle with some of those stages, and they stay in that certain stage or this certain stage longer than they do the others are longer than other people might. We all handle it differently, but handle it we must. You can't bury it down. You can't stuff it down. You can't say it doesn't exist. You have to get up front with it. And that lady did, and it took quite a while, but she fully recovered. And in essence, that, and I told that story to tell you that that's what God did with Elijah. There were no sermons. There wasn't any kind of long counseling session. Just rest and love. Love and rest, and love, and rest, and love, and rest. And eventually, in the very practical, living in the moment, meaning of the word, God did deal with Elijah's depression. And I want you to notice what God did. Because these are the greatest steps of dealing with depression that anybody can ever give you. So what did God do for Elijah? I'm going to read verse 7 and 8. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey's too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. That was uh, verses 7 and 8. Those of you that are following, this makes a good study if you just keep going along in your scripture. The first thing God did to him, the first thing God did for him, the first thing that God saw that Elijah needed to do, God sent him to church. Now I know those theologically pure people that are here this morning say, well, there was no church then, and the church hadn't been started then. And so You notice I put it in quotation. Because I, I wanted to shorten it and not have this great big long definition of what I mean here. And you'll get it. God sent him to Mount Horeb, also known by the people there as the mountain of God. Why? Why? 
Because that's where God met Moses with the law. Did you know, by the way, Moses, interesting character, did you know, by the way, that Moses was the very first real real techie specialist in the Bible? How many of you knew that? No, don't snicker. I'm serious. How many of you knew that? Yeah, he received the commandments on a tablet. Well, don't hold your head down. I read that in my Bible. Now, what kind of Bible have you got? Am I right? Yeah. So long before, who are these guys that do the, that, that you know, they, they invented all this computer stuff. Whoever they are, the names, I don't know them. They're not really in my socioeconomic class. I guess we haven't met yet. Long before they were even thought of, Moses was getting stuff on his tablet. Some of you are like, boom, Dad, he's trying to be funny. No, I read it in the Bible. You need to get up to speed. You need to find out who this Moses guy was. Bill Gates, who's that? I'm on Moses' team. Amen. Yeah, come on. I thought I'd just throw that in. It got about what I thought it would. Now, church, you wouldn't get that till about Wednesday at 4 o'clock, so... Good luck. Um, when I say church, boy, I have to be careful here because there's so many people that like to correct me on all this terminology. But when I say church, I mean being around where spiritual help is available. Now, you're not going to get the spiritual help if you're not around where it's available, and you're not going to employ the spiritual help unless you put into practice what you are learning and getting and reading, and et cetera, et cetera. However, that's what I'm kind of getting at for church, because that's one of the best places to deal with depression. And, and I can show you case study after case study after case study after case study where that has been proven out. When church is done right, I want to repeat that. When church is done right, I've talked a lot about the growing dynamic church in, in a, re, a couple of recent messages. It's the place where we listen to each other and we help one another. Okay, We listen and we help. Sometimes we help by not doing anything. Sometimes we help by giving a, a bit of a sage advice or saying, well, this is all I know. I went through this or that or something similar, but you know, maybe we don't even say that. Please don't say, I know how you feel. Please don't use that. I, I, I'm working on a message right now. Uh, uh, Christian cliches that are totally wrong. Yeah. Oh, I know how you feel. I know what you're going through, sister. You don't. You don't. Oh, God must have had a, there must be a reason for it. Now you're way out there. I mean, you're grabbing at something that's not even there. But it sounds so good. When church is done right, when your heart is in the right place. It's a place where you, we listen to each other and we help one another. How do I know that? Because the Apostle Paul told me that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's no other way to fulfill the law of Christ but to bear one another's burdens and to be there. 
In 1999, or right in that area, Duke University conducted a study of nearly 4,000 senior adults, and one of their conclusions was this, and I quote, attendance, they call it, at a house of worship, is related to lower rates of depression and anxiety. I do not doubt that whatsoever. But I, I must put in the proviso. But church doesn't stop with you being in a place of worship. If that's all the church is, and I know for some people that's what church is, it's a place I go to, it's a babbling idiot that I listen to, and then I go home and have a decent lunch. No, don't laugh. That's what some people think. And some are sitting in this place today. It's fine. It's fine. But that's not where church ends. That's where church begins. That's not just where you get your help for Sunday. That's where you get your help for every other day of the week. So you need what? Time alone with God. Hello. You need time in prayer. Hello. You need time in the Word of God, the Bible. Hello. Those things are the most powerful antidepressants on the globe. Now I'm going to take you into the realm of science, and I want you to stay with me for a minute, because I want to tell you about a man by the name of Andrew Newberg. He was the director of nuclear, uh, clinical nuclear medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. He used what's called the SPECT technique. How many of you are, are, are specialists in SPECT? S-P-E-C-T. Okay, only about a dozen. SPECT stands for Single Photon Emission Computer Tomography. Now, is, it, is that clear? That's cross-sectional slices of the human brain using gamma cameras and radioisotopes. How are we doing? Now, he did an interesting thing and had an interesting discovery. He studied the brains of people who, and, and again, you know how the world uses the word religion, so he called them religious people, which is fine. I'm not offended by that who either prayed or meditated on a regular basis, his team, his scientific team, found a dramatic increase in action in the front region of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. The region is associated with judgment, and it's associated with empathy. That is, putting yourself in the other person's shoes. The, the group also discovered decreased activity in a region of the brain known as the superior parietal lobe, which gives us our sense of self. So here are the findings. They seem to indicate that people, while engaged in spiritual pursuits, felt a loss of self. It wasn't about me anymore. It's not I, 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 I. Newberg says prayer and meditation have been shown to lower the risk of depression, even heart disease, and also improve overall immune function. So you get your prayer life right, and you get your, your, your Bible life right, and, and you, you do church like it's supposed to be and get that right, you're going to lower the risk of depression, heart disease, and, 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 and improve your overall immune function. You say, is it all up here? No, it actually emanates from here. So the first thing God did is he sent Elijah back to his spiritual roots. And if you're having a problem that 
you just can't handle, then you need to get back to your spiritual roots, whoever you are. Secondly, God had Elijah tell him what the problem was. If you want a crash course in counseling, I can give you one. I ask three questions in my counseling room. Most people never come back because they can't handle the questions. No. First question is, what's the problem? That's the end of it for a lot of people. They got a problem, but they're not dealing with the problem. They're dealing with the symptoms. So they never really identify the problem. And they look at me like, oh, yeah, Bob, that's fine. No, what is the problem? I want you to tell me what the problem is. You could say, you haven't owned it yet. You haven't identified it yet. You don't really know what it is yet. You can blame your wife. You can blame your husband. You can blame your great-grandmother. You can blame your parents. You can blame society, whatever. And when you're all done doing that, I'm still going to ask question one. What is the problem? Tell me. And the second thing I ask is, so what... Or what am I supposed to do about it? Like, why did you come to me? Some of you have been in my counseling room, you know I ask these three questions. So what, tell me what the problem is. We can't go on until you know. And when you know, then I'll know that you know, and then I'll know. Then I'll ask you the second question. So what do you want me to do? Why did you come here? Do you think I have pixie dust? Do you think I can snap my fingers? Do you think I can just say, turn around three times, jump up in the air, hold your breath for ten seconds. There, you're all better. What? Do you want, now many times people just want me to listen. And as much as I talk, I have two ears and one tongue, and I can, I can listen a lot. And I do. My wife's going to attest to that. Boy, oh boy, how many hours I've spent <laughs> listening to people in my counseling room. Oh. <laughs> you knew exactly what I meant, didn't you? Yeah. See? I practice on her, yep. Um, so what's the third question, do you suppose? What are you going to do about it? Yeah, now you've told me the problem, if you have. Now you've told me what I'm supposed to be doing or why you came to me. Now I want to know what you're going to do. Because you get the first two 100% and write down, but you leave the third one for nothing. You've wasted my time and yours. Pretty harsh, I know. That's what Jay Adams calls new aesthetic counseling. Straight up, in the face. It's like Nathan and David. When Nathan came to King David and told him the awful story and, and how the man killed another man and he took the man's wife and all this stuff, and, and, and King David said, What? That? Whew, what to stop? What a terrible story! Can't believe that story. Who would ever, are you making this up? Who would ever do something like that? And Nathan stepped right into the king's face and said, Thou art the man. That's called confrontational counseling. David was never the same after that meeting. Never, ever, ever. So, God had Elijah tell him what the problem was. And some of you have been running all over the kingdom with your problem, and you've never identified the problem. I didn't ask what the problem was with your, your cousin. I didn't ask what the problem was with post-traumatic st stress disorder. I didn't ask you what the problem was because you get 
kind of down sometimes if you're not on your meds and you're not bound. I didn't ask you that. What is the problem? I don't know how many marriages end before the problem is ever identified. It's absolutely abhorrent. It's the most terrible thing. So God asked, God asked Elijah a question. I love the question he asked him. I'm going to read verse 13. When Elijah, because I want you to keep reminding yourself, Bob's not making all this up. This is coming straight off the pages of Scripture. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood. That was the great wind that went by at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Whose voice do you think that was? Mm. Yeah. So God asked Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, here's something I want you to know. You may not have seen this before. He didn't just ask that question of Elijah once. He asked that very same question to Elijah twice on two different different times. What are you doing here? If you look down at verse 9, (laughs) and then come back up to verse 13, You'll see God is asking Elijah the very same question. Two separate times. You're sitting here saying, well, Bob, didn't God know? Didn't God know? Of course he knew. Who do you think sent Elijah to the mountain? But Elijah needed to vocalize what was wrong in his life. Elijah needed to explain what he thought the problem was. And once Elijah verbalized his belief of what was wrong, then things started to happen. Because the third thing that God did for Elijah was he dealt with the false beliefs and false ideas that were fueling Elijah's depression. You know, Jesus himself said in John 8, you shall know the truth, and the truth will what? See, that's why some of you are in bondage today, because you've never dealt with your thing in truth. You've skirted all around the issue. You've blamed everybody but the pet next door. But you haven't ever sat face to face with the truth and said, boom, this is the problem. This is tough stuff, isn't it? Isn't it? Nobody's even looking at me. I guess it must be. The truth shall set you what? Why? Here's why. Glad you asked. Because false ideas and false beliefs, especially if those are false beliefs about God, and some, some people I meet that are Christians, they got some weird ideas about God. Those false ideas and beliefs have the power to put us in bondage. You say, well, that's where I am right now, or that's where I was, or that's where I've seen some of my life actually in bondage. Our lives are built around what we think is true about life, and if the foundations of that reasoning are based on wrong information or impressions, the results, my friend, can be devastating. Now, drilling down, Elijah's reply to God is interesting because Elijah is replying and revealing what he had wrong. Here's what he had wrong. He didn't think, boy, does this ever come down to everyday, right now, society. He didn't think that God was doing anything. 
Oh, wow. Whoops, Bob, you drove into my yard right there. God's delay usually is just God's timing. We want to run the clock. We want to control the calendar. Yes? Yeah. And when it doesn't happen, according to our schedule, then I guess God isn't what? Doing anything. And then we get really brave say, well, I guess, God, you don't even care because you don't even know I'm here. I'm just going to trip over my lip. I'm going to sit in the gutter. I'm going to eat worms and die. So there. <laughs> well, that's what Elijah said. He said, I'm not good for anything. Just kill me. In verse 14, look, we'll just keep going here. Elijah replied to God and said, look, I've been zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites, like these are supposedly your people. They've all rejected your laws and your covenant. They broke down the altars. They put your prophets to death with a sword. I've told you before, I'm telling you again, I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too, and you don't seem to care. Hidden in the midst of that statement was this accusation. Here it is in my own terms. I've been beating my head against the wall serving you, God. And everything seems to be just falling apart around me. So in all this time, i got a question for you. What have you been doing? And I can get really animated on this point because I know I, there would not ever be anybody that I ever preached to that, has ever accused God like that or ever asked God that kind of a question, but I just thought I'd mention it if you ever meet somebody that might have that problem. <laughs> so God corrects Elijah's thinking. Here's what he tells him in verse 18. He said, you're not the very only one left. Matter of fact, he said, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all of them whose knees have not yet bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed the idol. So, Elijah, I've not been doing nothing. In fact, I'm just getting started. I love that. So around verse 15, 16, 17, we read these words, and it's so worth doing. Go back the way you came. Now, that, there's some counseling right there. There's some counseling right there. So you're off the track. The wheels fell out. What, whatever happened to your life? Well, go back where you came from. Get back to the starting point. Get this race started right and stay on the track. Anyway, I kind of went on a rabbit trail there, didn't I? And go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Heziel king over Aram, also anoint Jehu king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, this is exciting, to succeed you as a prophet, and Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Heziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. I wish preachers could do that today. In other words, don't, man, Presidents of countries can't even say it anymore. In other words, don't worry about it, Elijah. I've got it all under control. And yes, I'm doing something, even though you can't describe it. Hello? Hello? 
In World War II, when our Allied troops were making their way across Europe and they were coming in to cross Hitler's forces that had been greatly weakened, they came across a bombed-out building and it had this inscription scrawled on the basement wall. I want to read it for you. And it says, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when it's not shown. And I believe in God even when He doesn't speak. When a person's depressed, they don't think God's doing much of anything. They don't. Huh? Hello? If you've ever been there, you know exactly what I'm saying is true. They have no hope. They have no confidence. God isn't easily seen by them. If they ever get a feeling or a touch of God, they have to kind of work it up. A person in depression needs to realize that just like Elijah, God is working in their lives even when they can't see him. So what was the last thing God did for Elijah? You won't, want, you won't like this formula either, so I'm giving it to you. God gave Elijah something to do. This is the greatest antidote to depression in the, in the world. I've used this over and over and over again. So, when God finished his counseling session with Elijah, Elijah was still in the complaining mode, but God basically tells him, get back to work. I've got work for you to do. (coughs) Make yourself useful. So, in 15 and 16 of 1 Kings 19, here's what he said. He said, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu king over Israel and anoint Elisha. He's got a lot of anointing to do, doesn't he? Because Elisha's going to succeed you as the prophet. And that transformation was another story that's just full of glory. During, listen to this famous, 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 famous doctor. A lecture on mental health. Somebody asked Dr. Carl Menninger, what would, you do, what would you advise a person to do if that person felt a nervous breakdown coming on? I thought he would say, well, there's no such thing as a nervous breakdown because nerves don't break down. But that's just semantics. He didn't answer that way. Most people thought he'd say, go see a psychiatrist and get there as quickly as you can. And, and, but he didn't. Here's what Dr. Carl Menninger said. I mean, to everybody's astonishment, and I'm quoting him. He said, lock up your house, go across the railroad tracks, find somebody in need, and help that person, end of quote. To over, listen to me very carefully, to overcome discouragement, don't focus on yourself. Get involved in the lives of other people. If it were a man I was counseling over the years, I'd say, go change some tires. If it was a woman that I was counseling over the years, I would say, go bake some cookies. How many think I'm just making that up? Say, why should I bake cookies? So you can go and give them to your neighbor. So you can go to the nursing home and spread some cheer. So you can, at that time, you could go to the hospital and you could you know, fill people up with cholesterol and diabetes and everything, and they loved it, but now we've gotten so sophisticated, we just put them in there and give them a number. Yeah, you go bake some cookies. During the first part of the 20th century, which some of you are now 
slowly coming into. Um, no. How many know we're in the 21st century? Okay. Eight's not bad. Uh, I thought we'd only get like four or five. In the early days of the 20th century, it was, it was quite a century. Wow, they call it the American century, but there's some things in that century I don't know that we want to claim. A man by the name of James Cash Penny was a real man, real man, presided over a real powerful empire of over 1,700 stores. At the time, he had the country's largest chain of department stores, each one bearing his name. But although his enterprise made him incredibly wealthy, and probably all of us helped that along the way, right? <laughs> J.C. Penney's life was not devoid of setbacks and troubles. Fine Christian man. In fact, beginning in 1929, how many know what that year was? <laughs> the stock market crash. Events took place that nearly cost him his life. When that Great Depression struck the country, it came at a time of great financial vulnerability. Uh, literally, millionaires were jumping off of buildings and jumping out of hotel uh, windows and shooting themselves, and all kinds of things were happening. In the good times, before the Depression, J.C. Penney had overextended himself, and he borrowed heavily to finance a lot of his ventures, and when the Depression hit, banks started requesting repayment of loans in advance or sooner than anticipated, and suddenly cash flow tightened up. People couldn't buy. They didn't have the means. The penny was finding it difficult to meet even his payment schedules. Constant, unrelenting worry began to take a toll. He said, I was so harassed with worries that I couldn't sleep, and I developed an extremely painful ailment. Concerned about his deteriorating health, James Penny checked himself into the Kellogg Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, kind of like the Mayo Clinic of today. There, Dr. Elmer Eggleston, this is a phenomenal story, staff physician examined Penny, declaring he was extremely ill, possibly irreversibly ill. Penny later recalled, a rigid treatment was prescribed, but nothing helped. He was constantly tormented by periods of hopelessness and despair. His very will to live was rapidly eroding. I got weaker day by day. I was broken. I was broken nervously and physically. I was filled with despair. I was unable to operate. I couldn't even see a ray of hope. I had nothing to live for. This is all J.C. Penney's words. I felt that I hadn't a friend left in the world. Even my family had turned against me. <coughs> Alarmed by that deteriorating condition, Dr. Eggleston gave Penny a sedative. The effect of that quickly wore off. But James Penny awakened with the conviction that he was living the last night of his life. And he said, getting out of bed, I wrote farewell letters to my wife and to my son saying, I didn't expect to live to see the dawn. But J.C. Penny awakened the next morning, surprised to find himself alive, making his way down the hallway of the hospital, he could hear singing coming from the little chapel where devotional exercises were held every morning. The words of one poignant hymn that he heard being sung spoke very deeply to his soul. Going into the chapel, he listened to the singing. He listened to them read the Bible. He listened to them.
pray. And in his own words, he said these three words. Suddenly, something happened. He said, I can't explain it. I can only call it a miracle. I felt as if I had been instantly lifted out of the darkness of a dungeon into a warm, brilliant sunlight. I felt as if I had been transported from hell to paradise. I felt the power of God as I never, ever felt it before. And in a life-transmitting or transforming instant, in just that much of an instant, Mr. Penny knew that God, with his love, was in that room, and he was there to help him. Writing some years later, here's what he said. From that day to this, whatever it, whenever it was that he wrote, my life has been free from worry. The most dramatic and glorious 20 minutes of my life were those I spent in that chapel that morning. My friends, the words from the old hymn that spoke so eloquently and miraculously to J.C. Penney were these. Some of you here may know them. Be not dismayed, whate'er betide. God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you. God will take care of you. Through every day, or all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. Mark it well, my friends. This is soul healing. I want to challenge everyone truly listening to God's voice today. I know the time is late. People are anxious, but I want you to allow God to start digging us out of this troublesome life. Out of our pride. Huh? Out of our guilt, out of our consequences, out of our accompanying depression. Let's own the shame. Let's own the sin. Let's own the depression. Let's fall at the throne of His mercy. Let's call on the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's hoist the white flag of surrender and say, God, I surrender to you. Let's bathe in the warm, soul-restoring grace of Almighty God. Oh, dear people, in the all-powerful name of Christ, let's get on with digging out. God loves you, and so do we. Can I share a prayer with you? Let's bow for prayer. I'm going to pray a specific prayer this morning that God will touch some lives, change some directions. Possibly even He's going to save somebody's soul this morning. And somebody who's fighting this 
or something else that they've been just struggling with, they're going to get victory through Jesus Christ this morning. We're not here to promote a church. We're not here to brag on a preacher. We're not here to evaluate the singing or the music or the anything else. We're here to lift up the name of Jesus Christ and Him only. And while we're bowed in prayer, and I thank you for your reverence, and I thank you for your willingness to abide right now in prayer. If you're here this morning and I've touched on, or God, His Spirit, has touched on something that you're in right now or going through, and you just can't make it, you just, you're struggling, I want to pray specifically for you because everyone else is praying right now. Heads are bowed. As the old preacher said, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If that's you, because I want to pray for you specifically without mentioning you by name, I want you to stand right where you are, very, very quietly. And by standing, you're saying, Bob, I'm battling depression. I'm going through something. I haven't been able to put the words to it, but I think God put his finger on it this morning. Would you pray for me? And if you'll stand right now, I'm going to give you just a few seconds. I will pray for you. All over the place. I'll wait just another few seconds. I struggle with depression. I struggle with this. I'm in the midst of it right now. Those of you that stood, thank you. You may be seated. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are God who gives us way more than we could ever, ever, ever deserve. Just the gift of life itself and the joys and, and enjoyment and the blessings of everyday life. For that we give you praise. To be in a group of people this morning who care, who are willing to listen, who know that the admonition of Scripture is that we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill your law. Father, that's what we want to do. That's who we want to be this morning. For those who have stood and identified themselves, many people in this congregation this morning, possibly struggling with depression or loneliness or fear, just suicidal tendencies, all these things, the range of emotions is un- unending. Lord, whatever the need is in that, in that life, whatever the need is in, in that person who stood, Lord, I don't take that just for granted, but I thank you for that openness and that honesty. Now do your work on behalf of that dear woman, that dear man, those dear people who have stood today. And for all, whether they were seated or standing, it matters not, Lord. You know the heart. You look down deep into our souls. And you know what we need and when we need it and how to deliver it. And we're thankful for that. Thank you for your grace. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. Grace that is greater that all of our sin, all of our depression, all of our failures, all of our defeats, grace, grace, grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to listen to a song.